This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. As you may have heard, uh, Karen Terzano just returned from Finland, where she has uh, established an outpost of ordinary mind, the new Sangha there. Uh, some of you uh, were at Sashin last year with Timo, who came over from Finland and with a request for a, a teacher to help lead a group there. And she's responded and looks like they're going to set up a ongoing uh, group. As part of that project, they wanted to um, translate uh, some of our chants into Finnish. And there's nothing like uh, working on a translation to make you think about what you're saying. Uh, and Karen and them uh, worked on a translation of our four practice principles. Uh, and they apparently had some question about this, uh, these opening lines caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, and whether dream or delusion was the right word, and whether caught was like an animal gets caught in a trap, or what kind of metaphor that is. And it got me thinking about that version that we've been chanting here since 1996, and which was we've used because that's the version that Joko used at the uh, Zen Center of San Diego all these years, and it was uh, in turn its own uh, translation or adaptation of the Four Noble Truths that was uh, put together somewhat by committee. Uh, uh, I was not part of that original uh, translation effort. Uh, but when we started the group here, the intention was to um, continue using most of the forms uh, and text that they use there for the sake of continuity and connection with, the, uh, with Joko's group. But as I talked about it with uh, Karen, uh, the translation she was doing with, for the Finns, I decided I really didn't like the translation we use very much. <laughs> um, and in particular, the second line where we say, holding to self-centered thoughts exactly the dream, uh, seems redundant, doesn't really add much to the first line caught in a self-centered dream only suffering 
Um, and so I suggested to them an, an alternative line, which I'll suggest to you as well, and we'll decide what to do about it. I would begin by saying, caught in a self-centered dream, waking to a dream within a dream. And then keep the last two lines. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. See, what is the alternative to being in a self-centered dream? That's really what I was trying to think about in, in revising that second line. Uh, what what do you wake up to if you wake up from a self-centered dream? See, too often uh, in Zen there's a kind of language about sort of waking up as if we'll wake up and then see reality directly uh, as if it was... Uh, something now fixed and clear if only we're not looking at it through cloudy, self-centered lenses. But actually the um, the world and the self are equally empty. Equally lack any fixed, continuous, permanent essence. Both are dreams. Both are impermanent, transitory, without substance. The suffering of a self-centered dream is the suffering of trying to hold on to and maintain a permanent point of reference, a permanent unchanging me in the midst of a changing world that somehow you're going to be able to hold and maintain in the midst of a flux, right? That's going to always be a losing battle. So what Part of what happens in practice is that kind of um, dissolving of the boundary between how we see the self and how we see the world as inseparably part of one thing that's always interconnected and always changing. Each moment life as it is, the only teacher what is that teacher teaching? Each moment, life as it is. There's that sense that all there is is each transitory moment that we're not separate from, that we are. What it's teaching moment to moment is we can't cling to it. Right? What it teaches that each moment we either resist it 
or try to hold on to it, resist it or try to hold on to it. And you watch what your mind does as you sit or go about your daily life. Most of what you're doing, moment to moment, is either pushing something away or trying to hold on to something else, right? And so, the teaching of each moment, as life as the teacher, is just to put in our face over and over again that, that clinging or resistance, that clinging or resistance, right? And it's constant, and it's always available. That, that was really what Joko wanted to emphasize as the core of our practice, just that awareness of that moment-to-moment rejection of life as it is, rejection of the flow and impermanence of life as it is. The last line, being just this moment, compassion's way. See, that's the turn into what's the alternative look like, right? Where the being just this moment contains within it responsiveness, a natural, compassionate response. Not compassion in the necessarily conventional sense of do-gooding, you know, but compassionate in the sense of allowing everything to be just as it is, right, without clinging or rejection. That's really uh, the essence of compassion, letting something be just what it is. And that I, I happen to like as a nice condensation of the last line in the traditional Four Noble Truths, which uh, articulate the Eightfold Path, um, which I can never remember. Uh, and I sort of brought the book up to recite it again. Um, this is Aiken Roshi's translation. It's always good to look at other people's translations of things. Um, he says, anguish is everywhere. Instead of all life is suffering. Anguish has the advantage, I suppose, of, of seeming like an emotional response to things as they are. Right? Suffering is a word that, for better or for worse, is both how something about the quality of existence itself and our response to that. Then he says there's a cause of anguish without saying what it is. There's liberation from anguish and liberation is the eightfold path. See, this translation dodges the uh, traditional question of what's the cause of anguish. It's usually built in there saying the cause is... uh, desire or clinging or attachment, right? And each one of those words has problems. And in Joko's translation, she said that, that self-centeredness as the, uh, the essential cause of anguish or, or suffering. So it's good to have, um, I, think, uh, I think it's good to put something in there like self-centeredness or desire, to try to make us think about what that, that is, what's the cause of what we call suffering or anguish. 
the third truth is a promise of liberation. Um, liberation, of course, is another loaded word in this business. Just what is that liberation supposed to look like? And the Eightfold Path is the way to go. Uh, right views, right thoughts, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort or lifestyle. Committee couldn't decide. Right recollection, right absorption. Uh, right absorption being like right concentration or samadhi in meditation, I believe. Indians have a great fondness for lists, <laughs> as far as I can tell. I don't share it. Uh, the, the, the problem with uh, that version is also is that it has... See, it, the, the, there's a certain parish Buddhism quality to the Four Noble Truths because it... Um, it says, what can we tell everybody about this practice in a way that anybody can understand and anybody can do? Uh, and, but what that translates into in the Eightfold Path is a uh, prescription of what to do, a kind of turning practice into a set of techniques or right actions, rules to follow. And it plugs into a kind of um, distillation of the monastic uh, vinaya, uh, all the rules of conduct, that if you do all this stuff, you will essentially embody a, uh, a selfless, non-clinging life. Right? Uh, the idea being, let's... Um, if we take the ideal monk as the model of non-self-centeredness, let's take all the, take a description of what that person would do and make a rule out of it, you know. And then, if you do all that stuff, maybe it will follow that you'll achieve that inner state of non-self-centeredness. Uh, the Heart Sutra works from the other direction. Uh, starts with an assertion of emptiness and says, uh, if, if you realize the emptiness of all five conditions, uh, if you realize the emptiness of self and world, everything automatically, spontaneously flows out of that. Right? You don't follow a rule to get from here to there that uh, you start with a uh, with an awareness. And when I uh, was thinking of this second line again, awakening to a dream within a dream, it's with the intent of um, coming back to that more heart sutra oriented sense of. The centrality of a realization of emptiness, the realization of a dream within a dream, the, per, the, uh, the dream of self waking up into the dream of the greater world. Um, 
and it's realizing the emptiness of things that allows you to simply meet each moment just as it is and let it go. Meet each moment just as it is and make a response in the moment, right? Those are the third and fourth lines. Now, at various times, I've said that matters of liturgy are the prerogative of the teacher. And other times we have uh, thought that we would uh, experiment with a little more democracy in making decisions. I'm on the fence about this one, uh, which I suppose means I'll uh, err on the side of democracy and uh, make it the subject of some uh, future discussion group about whether you would like to... Uh, change what we recite with the practice principles. Uh, It would be a good discussion uh, because we have to weigh the value of, well, we've always done it that way (laughs) against uh, what we think we're actually saying and why are we saying it that way. So uh, I will will leave it up to you all to uh, discuss and uh, decide.